Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Jordans, here with your amazing and awesome producer, Molly Stevens. Here on the Leaders Table podcast, it is our job to dissect leaders in policy and education to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to help empower you. This episode, we're joined by Amy Wilkins, Senior Fellow for Social Justice at the College Board and an advocate known for her work on behalf of kids, education, and equity at the Education Trust. Now, Amy's been working on education and social justice issues for more than two decades. She brings not only deep insights on the challenges and opportunities of today, but really helps to connect the dots across the years from the No Child Left Behind Act to the Common Core uh, Initiative to the Every Student Succeeds Act. And fellow millennials, this interview is for you. Amy gives great advice to young people wanting to work on policy in D.C., how to hone a set of skills by spending time with experts, learn from your losses, and most important of all, how to shut up and listen to get things done. Yeah, and Amy is great here talking about how important it is to practice the art of political compromise to gain ground for kids. And that advice comes from really deep experiences of her own as an advocate for kids and educational equity on Capitol Hill and in the states. Amy's the real deal. Her advocacy quite literally helped Congress to think that every child can succeed. And he or she offers her personal advice to our listeners who want to do that and more. Soak it all up. Here's Amy Wilkins at the leader's table. Amy Wilkins, thank you so much for joining the Leaders Table. Uh, by way of introduction, you are the Senior Fellow for Social Justice at the College Board, where you are the College Board's leading advocate for social justice, um, working to evaluate, support, and expand the College Board's social agenda. Um, I look forward to digging in with you. Cannot wait to to hear about what you're doing today, talk a little bit about what you think about um, the policy issues facing the education space, and just dig into your very, very rich history in education reform. Great. I'm so happy to be here today. So, Amy, you are probably one of the, the, the few people in the education reform space that has seen the, the, the grand evolution of the, fe- of, of the federal role in education from the initiation of No Child Left Behind to today uh, with, uh, with the Every Student Su- Succeeds Act. What is it that, are, that is most, um, the, the most important thing on your mind as the states now work to implement this, this new law? Yeah, in, in the course of the reauthorization, you know, the states 
said quite clearly, um, we know how to do this. Um, we know how to ensure success for kids and to close achievement gaps. And so it's really important now that the states sort of stand and deliver. You know, they said they didn't like being so directed by the federal government and they thought more flexibility would better serve their students. They got that flexibility and the real question now, facing, you know, state legislators, governors, state departments of ed, boards of education, is how they're going to use that flexibility and will they use it responsibly on behalf of the kids who depend on them most. What concerns you about uh, about that flexibility? Is there are there do you have a kind of a top list of things that the states should worry about? You know, the states really need to worry about um, heterogeneous schools where there are achievement gaps. Um, you know, there is um, there are ways that there there you know just because most of the kids are doing well in your school shouldn't mean that your school is hunky-dory. You know, people shouldn't take that as a sign that it's hunky-dory. Um, states and school boards um, are going to have to ensure that schools and school districts get the support that they need to ensure that all groups of children, whether those are children with disabilities, whether those are children who are learning English, whether those are Latino, African-American, or poor children, are doing well. Um, and it, it's that, that we can't you know, we can't afford to overlook, I guess, what's popular called subgroups of students um, when when they may be only a small piece of a population in a school. Have has equity been become a closer dream or a closer goal in the last twenty years of the education movement? I think I think in some ways it has and in some ways it hasn't. I think, you know, when I first started doing this work, um, people sort of accepted lower achievement on the part of low-income kids, kids of color, kids with disabilities, and English language learners. Um, now, sort of, it's not polite. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not PC to say that you accept that. Um, and that, you know, talking about the gap has become common. Um, my, my worry is that while it's, it's you know, it's not, that while it's entered our language, um, it may be, we haven't yet, yet gotten to the place where there is enough um, will to really tackle the deep problems um, that it'll take, that we'll need to tackle um, to close gaps. You know, when I was uh, when I was an intern, I, I spent time with uh, at the Education Trust uh, at your first stint at the organization. And this is like ni- 1998, where the trust was uh, looking at looking up in arcane data at the DOE on NAEP scores, that which were very hard to access at the time, um, putting out either the first or the second version of, of Education Watch. Um, oh, wow. So, well, you right. were there a long time ago. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, pushing for for data-based advocacy, just to say, no, if we, if we understand the differentials in the way that different kids perform, then that will empower us to uh, to take action. Now, clearly, a lot has happened in the last almost 20 years. We have so much more data on 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 um, on equity. We have so much da- more data on the way that kids perform. What are the gaps, though? What are the things that we still don't know or understand, even with the deluge of numbers that t- that surround us today? 
Well, I mean, the, the, the first thing is that, you know, we, we still have to pay attention to the numbers we have. You know, the NAEP data comes out and it's a story for a day and, you know, you don't really see people acting on it. Um, I, I worry that we may be getting to a place where people are a little desensitized to the horror that mm-hmm. one can find in the numbers. Um, but in terms of, you know, other data, stuff that we are not looking at very carefully, I think one of the things is, you know, schools can have um, policies that apply to all students, but the implementation of those policies, that is, who they're applied to and who they're not, um, can be very subjective and, and not, you know, kids, uh, and not equally applied. Um, for example, schools can say that all kids who score at some level on the PSAT should be put in AP classes. But what we find is that, you know, black and brown kids who score at high levels on PSATs aren't put into AP classes at the same rate as are their white peers. Um, we need to also look more carefully, I think, um, at data where you can see race and class intersect. Um, we have very crude measures for class now. It's, you know, most, most of the data we have is, you know, you either qualify for free and reduced price lunch or you don't. Um, and we aren't, you know, we don't, that doesn't give us a very fine-grained view of the interaction of class and race in our schools. I think we need some, some better tools to look at that. Well, um, what... Well, I think, let me, let me talk just a little more. You know, one of the things that happens in almost every conversation where you're talking about race and education is people quickly, people quickly fall into, well, black kids or Latino kids aren't doing well because they're poor. Um, when it comes to black kids, in fact, the majority of black kids aren't poor. Yes, there are too many poor black kids, but the majority of them aren't poor. And until we start looking at the achievement gap for middle-class kids, I don't think we're going to solve it effectively. Does that make sense? Absolutely. What do you think are, why do you think that we're, we're stuck in such a binary? Is it, is it that we, as a society, have not come to, to accept the, the great variations among, in wealth among our, our students of color or just don't understand them? Well, I think it, I'm not even sure that it's the, only in students. I think we, the culture, have yet to understand, you know, that not all poor people are black. I mean, not all black people are poor. That just, you know, sure. that hasn't gotten through our cultural head yet. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting. You see in the political environment where um, a candidate can talk about the inner city as if the inner city exactly. is still associated with, with people of color. Exactly. And I don't, and I don't think that most, I, I think that a lot of Americans would nod their heads and go, yep, that's right, you know? Yeah. Is it still, Amy, a, a good teacher in every classroom that, uh, that can... Um, that can close the achievement gap, or or has does our view have to to be more, uh, be wider? Well, I think certainly a good teacher is part of it, but that teacher needs to be needs all you know needs lots of support, right? You don't sort of you don't throw even the best swimmer in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and say you know get to France. <laughs> you know we need we we need strong school leaders who can support those teachers and their professional development. Those teachers need the right resources. You know we depend too much on teachers to um, sort of 
develop the curriculum as they're teaching the class so that there should be good curriculum tools available to them. There needs to be good technology available to those teachers. I mean, yes, good. we need good teachers, but we need um, a whole system of supports around them. And the same is true sort of as you, it's, it's almost like, you know, those Russian nesting dolls. We need good schools, but good schools can only in, exist in the context of school works um, and school districts that take, you know, that take education seriously. So sort of the whole system needs to be student-centered, student-focused, but each, each layer of the system has to be aligned and supporting that, you know, the essence of learning, which is the student-teacher relationship. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned technology. A uh, personal passion of mine is looking at the homework gap and how the digital divide affects learning in a now internet-powered world. Um, while there's so much work to be done just in uh, in achieving equity of, of uh, having a great teacher in every classroom and, and equity and expectations, I feel like the technology got divide uh, not only keep students away from truly 21st century skills and practices, but um, but we're creating once again kind of a, a, um, a, a very two-tiered system in terms of access to technology and what kids do with that technology. Is that is that an issue you look at regularly? I was going to say, I, I, you took the words out of my mouth. It's not just the access to technology, um, but it's the content of the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can be doing, you know, bubble sheets on a computer, or you can be doing interesting, you know, marine biology simulations. And, you know, I, I think the evidence suggests that low-income kids and kids of color, um, English language learners, are doing lower-level stuff even when they have access um, to technology. So we have to be conscious of, you know, ensuring not just that the hardware is there, but that the software is there and that the teacher is able to use the software in, you know, creative ways. So it's, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. Absolutely. The expectations gap uh, still, I, I think, is, is, is key to the entire discussion. At the end of the day, we've, you and the Education Trust and others in, the, uh, in this world have, have been working for, for a couple of decades to show that poor kids, all kids, can learn at high levels. And yet we, we seem to continue to have this lagging expectation of, of poor kids as if, uh, as if they don't have the same abilities or expectations if we give them the right stuff. And, you know, they, they certainly, you know, low-income kids face additional challenges, right? I mean, it, 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 there's no question that they and their teachers have to cross hurdles that more fortunate children don't have to um, to reach high levels of achievement. But rather than giving those kids and their teachers more, we give them less and double down on the disparity. Um, if we were really serious in this country about sort of, you know, how education fits into the American dream, you know, work hard in school and no matter where you start, you can finish as a success. If we were really serious about making that come true, we would be serious about ensuring that low-income kids and kids of color got, you know, the best and the most rather than the least and the worst. So, Amy, let me um, let me uh, diverge a little bit and uh, dive into what you're doing today. You're the you're the senior fellow for social justice at the College Board. What does that mean, and what are the things that you and the College Board are focused on? Well, I guess you know there are really two projects with which I'm most involved here. I guess three. Um, one is very sort of outward facing, um, and that's to ensure that. 
um, African-American and Latino kids who show the ability to do well in AP classes actually take those classes. There's a gap, oh, as I mentioned before, um, between the percentage of kids, the percentage of kids of color who demonstrated the ability to do well in AP and those kids actually getting into those classes. And the stunning thing is what people usually think when I say that to them um, is that, oh, the kids go to schools where they don't offer the classes. They have to do more to get AP classes into schools that serve African-American and Latino kids. The fact is that they're, that for the most part, these kids are attending schools that offer the classes um, and that they, for a variety of reasons, aren't being enrolled. So that's one thing I'm working on because, again, we know that rigor increases achievement, increases the chances that they'll go to college, increases the chances that they'll do well and graduate from college. So that's one piece of work. Um, the other thing I'm, you know, just beginning to look at now is the College Board um, does have a fabulous data set, um, one of the more sophisticated data sets in the country of high school kids. I mean, I'm, I'm limited here. Um, I can't look at, um, you know, elementary and middle school kids. Um, but that you can look at a variety of things. It's not just, like in NAEP, you can only look at... Um, income in a very limited way and race and ethnicity. Here at the College Board, we can look at things like the neighborhoods that kids um, grow up in. Um, we can look at family income in a fairly fine, you know, fine-grained way. We can look at the schools they go to. You know, on the tests that we produce, we can look at results and see how those things affect outcomes. And so I'm trying now various ways to look at College Board data and see what matters most to achievement for black and brown kids. Hmm. And what do you think is the future of the conversation about equity when it comes to um, K-12 versus post-secondary? Um, you know, I think that K-12, you know, while some of us may be frustrated and feel like we aren't moving fast enough, and I would put myself in that group, while some of us may be frustrated with the pace of change in K-12, um, I think K-12 may be about a decade ahead of mm -hmm. post-secondary, and post-secondary is going to have to face the same sort of issues of equity in terms of, I guess, you know, initially graduation rates. Um, that um, K-12 has been grappling with for about a decade now, and, you know, and quality issues will follow. But I think that it, it's <laughs> what we've gone through in K-12 is coming to higher ed. Um, and I hope that K-12 is in a position to provide some lessons and some learning to higher ed. Mm. So, Amy, you're, um, I can think of very few people who have had such an impact at such key times of uh, the development of the federal education um, stance on, on education reform. Your, your email at the time at the Education Trust is, is likely the, among the best legislative histories of, of No Child Left Behind. Yeah, so that's funny. What do you, how do you keep it all together? What are the, the, the things that are true for you on a daily or weekly or a monthly basis to organize your life, um, keep it together and have the impact that you're that you're seeking. Well, I think one of the things that's most important um, is perspective. Um, when you feel when you look at some of the data on poor kids, African American kids, Latino kids, um, and education and you look at the rate of progress we're making, it's very easy to get depressed. 
um, and to sort of say this is never going to change. Um, and I think that so people who do this sort of work or any kind of social justice work um, have to um, first figure out ways to cheer ourselves up, whether that's running or bike riding or being with your kids or your pets or whatever that is, you know, whatever, whatever brings you joy. Um, I think it's really important that people in social justice find ways um, to allow joy into their lives because you can, you can burn out and you can, you know, you, you can throw your hands up. And I think it's important to remember that this is a long fight. Um, so I think that's the, that's the first thing I would say to people who wanted to do this sort of work. Um, the other thing is, I don't know. I mean, it, it, you have to, you know, I make lists and um, I'm a slave to my um, outlook calendar. <laughs> um, you know, lists, you know, sort of making a list at the end of every week about what you think you're going to have to do in the next week and then chunking it into how you get it done day to day. It's, you know, I don't know. I'm a list maniac. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there are very few things as satisfying as crossing something physically off of a li- of your list that you just wrote. Right, Our- and you know, the, one of the things my first, my very first boss taught me when I was a community organizer um, is that the reason you write a work plan is so that you can adapt it. Um, but if you don't have a work plan, then you're in chaos. You know, and so you know, I believe really strongly in planning, but I also believe in responding to facts on the ground. So, yes, plans are important, but you have to adopt adapt those plans when the world changes. And do you carry or make keep your list in a notebook or in a in a in a program? Yeah, I'm a I'm a moleskin girl. <laughs> moleskin, yeah, moleskins are great. I love them. I always keep a keep a little one in my pocket as well. Yeah, you know, you just have to, you know, and I, you know, I think part of this is, you know, and it, 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 in this work, it's a different kind of note taking. You know, I mean, you know, I sit in meetings and don't write down every word people say, but I'm really careful about writing down what are the next steps out of meetings. That's that's like the gold, right? <laughs> and you know, you, what advice would you give to your 22 year old self? Oh, gosh. You know, I think that it, in a weird way, and I don't want to pat myself on the back because I have certainly made a ton of professional mistakes, and if you want to talk about those, I'm happy to talk about those. Sure. Um, but I think I did it, I, I kind of think I did it right. Um, a lot of 22-year-olds, I have a lot of sort of informational interviews with young people, and I, you know, I, I love young people, and one of the greatest joys now in my life is like working with and training um, people who are young and just starting out. Um, but there are a lot of people who come to Washington and want to, like, you know, write policy tomorrow. Um, you know, before I came to Washington, I worked um, for eight years um, in low-income communities in Massachusetts, in, in Springfield and in Boston, um, you know, low-income and working-class African-American communities there. And I think it's important if you want to come, you know, if you're trajectory um, is to come to Washington and kind of do policy stuff. I think it's important to spend time working in real communities with real people so you bring, and understanding, you know, if you want to do education, understanding how a school board works. Um, if you want to do housing policy, understanding how, you know, policy happens, at the, how housing policy plays itself out at the local level. I really think it's important to sort of, and I, I don't in any way mean, you know, sort of pay your dues, you know, out in the real world, but I mean, bring a, bring knowledge, bring something that you know that people in Washington value, which is experience working in real communities. And I think that's the most important thing. You're so unique in that you are 
a policy wonk, I think, in my opinion, a data wonk, and you really get how the process works on Capitol Hill. I think, which has been one, and, and likely in the state in state legislatures as well. But I've I've actually seen you, um, you know, a long time ago, do that work of of being an expert for the Hill, being a reliable voice that a legislative aide can call, informing a committee. How did how did you frame up that expertise? How did you, aside from from bringing the experiences that you had working in communities, how did you do that in Washington and become that voice uh, for those um, those policymakers to call? Um, I, well, I think um, I, I guess maybe two things. One is when you're a community organizer, you have to do everything. You're, I mean, you know, you obviously you work with your members and you have a, you know big, wonderful, um, you're a good organizer, you have very good um, community members and partners to work with. But when you're a community organizer, you know, you do every, you do all parts of the job, right? You, you, you help get the press release written, you help get the press release distributed, you help with the testimony for the city council or the state legislature. And so, uh, you know, I, I, again, I think, in, and in Washington, you know, all those functions are very chopped up. Um, when you're working at the lo- at the local level on, in a shoestring organization, um, you sort of have the opportunity to dip your foot in, uh, you know, the whole gambit of of, po- of of the policy change process. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing, I guess, I would say is that um, my first boss, when I got to Washington, um, when I was 28, um, told me to shut up, stay in my office, and listen. Um, and I was lucky enough to work then at the Children's Defense Fund, where there were a lot of very, very, very talented advocates, you know, from the data people to the legislative people to the communications people. And I I just, you know, I took her advice and just, you know, spent eight years sponging and learning from some very, very talented women. It's interesting. One of my favorite mentors told me, uh, Jason, if you want to be successful in Washington or anywhere, just be a sponge. If you just keep your mouth shut and listen a lot, you will learn so much more than trying to share before uh, before you're ready. No, I think that's right, and I think that you know when young people are looking for jobs in Washington or anywhere, what what will you know what ma- what will ultimately matter to them the most is not what they're doing, but who they're doing it with. Um, you know, when I worked at the Education Trust, I used to say, you know, we can teach anybody education issues, right? If you came to the Ed Trust and wanted a job, I would rather that you were like, you know, a skilled writer about housing policy, and then we could teach you the education stuff, or a skilled, you know, researcher in energy policy. We could teach you the education stuff, but really honing a, you know, a set of skills, the, en- the issues are fungible, but honing a set of skills is, I think, really important, and the best way to do that is to, you know, be with people who are really good at that stuff. Mm-hmm. Amy, have you found that uh, that the road has been harder for women, and and if so, what what have been your specific experiences? <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. Uh, uh, you know, um, I think probably one of the things that happened that you know most women um, will identify with is you say something in a meeting and people kind of go, uh huh, and then a man says it. You know, mm-hmm. five minutes later, and people go, oh, it's brilliant. Um, you know, somehow women are not heard um, in the same way that men are still, and, and that's frankly amazing to me. Um, 
you know, one of the things, um, again, back in Massachusetts, you know, I was for a while an energy lobbyist, and somebody, a state legislator said to me, oh, gosh, I'm so surprised that you're a woman. I would have been, you know, if you'd come in here to talk about education or child care, that would be, you know, I would expect that, but a woman talking about education policy. So, you know, yeah, it's it's tough to be a woman, and you have to, you know, in the same way that I say that the social justice stuff is a marathon, um, not a sprint, and it's a long fight, you got to, you know, if you're a woman in this work, you have to be willing to, you know, stick up for yourself and work hard, maybe twice as hard as a man to get your ideas um, heard and accepted. Mm-hmm. Have you had good mentors? Oh, I've had wonderful mentors, and most of them have been women. Extraordinary women. You know, I was lucky enough to work for Marion Edelman when I was very young, um, and she is a fabulous teacher. Um, there was a woman named Evelyn Lieberman, who was um, probably the most important mentor in my life, who was the communications director at the um, Children's Defense Fund. Um, I worked for Katie Haycock. I just worked for, you know, wonderful, extraordinary women. Absolutely. And Amy, what are the you mentioned a little bit? Uh, you talked a little earlier about some of your some of the the times where you failed. What are the some of the most important learnings that you've you've taken from those points of failure, and how do you apply them today? Um, I guess well, the, the the first thing I think is it's everybody has to understand, and I tell my fourteen year old son this all of the time that you learn more from your failures than from your wins. Um, that it is, you know, winning is certainly, you know, it, it's a high and there's an elation to it. Um, but a good loss is really, really, really helpful. Um, I, I guess the things I've learned is don't take anything for granted, which is where my mania for planning comes in. Don't, you know, try and think of all the contingencies, and of course there'll be ones that you forget. Um, don't say this, that... I guess I would say, how do I say this? The compromise, at least in the policymaking process, is absolutely critical, and you have to go into that understanding that you're going to compromise, um, and that you can be very self-righteous and lose, or you can compromise and gain some ground um, for kids. Um, that, and I think probably the most important, you know, I'm not, I'm not thinking in a very organized way, I think maybe the most important thing to learn um, and the most, in the place where I probably failed most frequently um, is that you have to listen. You absolutely have to listen. Um, you know, whether you are lobbying or talking to a journalist, if you listen carefully, um, you'll see where things are headed. I think so many of us um, are so intent on getting our point of view across mm-hmm. um, that we neglect to listen to sometimes the people who are talking to us. There are coalition partners or members of Congress. Um, and if you listen, <laughs> the, the roadblocks are clear and the path to victory is clear. But if you're, you know, if you're intent on just sort of pushing your way through, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. Does that when, make sense? Absolutely. When... Um if you can offer maybe an example of a time when mm-hmm. you you didn't live up to that value or, or you didn't listen yeah. enough, yeah, but, sure. and, and maybe sure. you lost that, uh, you know, that immediate battle. Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, you know, this is, this is kind of a long time ago, but in the sort of, you know, making progress around pre-K um, at the state level, um, I think I have been 
very intense. You know, my career has been mostly based around um, services to low-income kids and kids of color. Um, and there's, you know, there, there's the tension between um, universal pre-K um, and pre-K, you know, for low-income kids and kids of color. Um, and I was not sensitive enough or didn't listen enough, I think, to the universal pre-K community. That makes sense. Yeah, sure. What uh, you know in in such a crowded policy environment today? How do you do? You, how how today does the advocate gather the information that they need? Listen, truly listen intently, and then frame that into a story that's actually powerful and, and results in policy change. What are kind of the the top few things that come to your mind in in managing a process that like that? Um, well, I think yeah, having um, having the as much data as you can is a good place to start. As much accurate data as you can is a good place to start. But then I think it's really critical to do a culling process. I think too many people think um, the more that I have, um, you know, the more compelling my case will be. Um, what I found is that people really sort of can drown in numbers um, and that what you need is the slimmest most powerful um, case you can make. So I think there has to be a process of culling through the data. And you can do, you know, you can test that. You know, you can do A-B testing. You know, SurveyMonkey is a wonderful thing. But what is, what you know, identifying, you know, the largest source of data you can and then culling it down to the most effective data chunks and small chunks of data that people can hear, you know, not long, 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 dense paragraphs, but small chunks of data um, that people can hear. And remembering who your audience is. Um, I mean, I'm not saying you change your story for, you know, for different audiences. I mean, the truth is the truth. But what a parent in Springfield, Massachusetts cares about and what the chairman of the you know, House Education and Labor Committee may care about are different things. Even if you're telling the same truth, right? You're talking about the same subject, but recognizing who you're talking to and what facts are important to them, I think, are sort of critical pieces. Absolutely. Amy, I so appreciate this. I just want to dig in on just a, just one or two more things before we, we let you go. You, you just such a wealth of, of experience, knowledge, wisdom, practice. Um, but how does the first two hours of your day start? What to, walk me through from getting out of bed to, <laughs> to about 9.30 a.m.? Oh gosh. Um, well, you know, I'm a I'm a mom of a teenage boy, so um, the first um, 45 minutes is about getting a reluctant 14 year old out of bed and out the door. Um, it's really what that's about, but it's it's a joy. Um, it's you know, it's a nice way to start the day um, is with him. Um, but generally, you know, I come into the office, I get a cup of coffee, I look quickly at my to-do list really quickly um, just to, like, make sure that there's... And usually at night, um, I sh- you know, I back up at night, like, once I get home, there are always things that I had... Once your brain starts to relax, there are things that you think of that you hadn't thought of, like, during the crush of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, you do a quick look at your to-do list. You combine your thoughts of last night with today's to-do list. You kind of look at your calendar. You get a sense of the day. Um, and if I don't have to immediately go to a meeting, you know, I do spend like half an hour cruising around the Internet to see wh- what are the stories today, you know, especially around race, ethnicity, um, and poverty. Um, and then I start the day. Mm-hmm. And... Um do you do you have any rituals around email? Uh, do you or do you check email at all in the morning? Do you not check email on purpose? Do you chunk when you reply to emails? What's What's interesting is it, it, one of the things I've learned in transitioning from um, the education trust to the college board um, is that different um, or different organizations have different cultures around email. And I think that it's important, I've learned, that um, it's important to sort of figure out what your organization's email culture is. Mm-hmm. Um, at the Education Trust, the expectation for replies was um, on a much quicker turnaround time than it is at the college board. So I spent much more time sort of in real time answering things. Um, at the college board, there's much more of a get back to me in 24 hours. It's unspoken, but it's it's sort of what it is unless unless you say I need to know right now. So you know, I, I don't want to give sort of people retail advice about how to handle their email. I think the important I think when I first got to the college board, I was driving people crazy because I answered so quickly um, and I wasn't getting <laughs> into the culture. Um, so I think that you have to sort of identify what your organizational rhythm. Is. Um, and get into that, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Amy, thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom. You are just a, a gem of an advocate, and I wish that everyone could, uh, could be mentored by you and just learn from your example. Thank you sincerely for what you do. Oh, thanks a lot. This has been really fun. Excellent. We hope to talk with you again. Okay, take care. Thanks, Amy. Like this interview? Subscribe to the Leaders Table podcast on SoundCloud. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the Leaders Table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 